Well, scary title for a sermon series, Disciplined to Devotion. Is that scary to you or not? No? Got some nods and some head shakes. Uh, This summer, Elijah and I did um, what I called our manhood hike. And I called it that because when he turned 12, I I really wanted to do something that would like mark that occasion of him moving into manhood. And I know it's the beginning of it, but, but the, the movement I, I wanted to acknowledge. And so I know, you know, the Jewish people have bar mitzvah, and we don't have bar mitzvah. I tried to throw one. It wasn't, didn't work, no. Um, so I decided on a manhood hike. So I thought, you know, this will be a thing just he and I do. I said to Gabe, you're not allowed to come. Just Elijah and I are going to go. And when you're older, when you turn 12, then you and I will go together. Just you and I. And um, so we set out into Garibaldi Provincial Park, which is 1,950 kilometers, square kilometers. It's a big wilderness park. And we decided we would hike 22 of those kilometers. That's plenty. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Phil. So some of you are like, what? 22? That's nothing. Well, you know, it, it was, it's a six-hour hike. It's, that's what it's billed as. So we thought we, you know, we'd do three hours in, and we camp overnight, and then we do three hours back. That's kind of our level of wilderness, you know, or of, of, of hiking ability. And so um, there we are, yeah. And uh, so we decided we'd do this, and it's bug country, and it's bear country. You know, um, Patsy, Jenna's sister, lent us her bear spray, so we had that hanging, and we were kind of excited. And, and so we embarked on this thing, and, and uh, it's about a 600-meter elevation, which I thought, you know, that's not very much. And um, so we started the hike, and it's really steep. And so we kept saying to each other, you know, we've got our, all our stuff on our back. Elijah's got 20 pounds on his back, which is kind of the recommended limit for kids to carry 20 pounds. And so we're up there going up this thing and we're so steep. And we kept saying, oh, maybe the next turn it'll, it'll level out. Cause that's kind of what I was looking for a level hike. And so I said, no, well, around the next turn. And then we get to the next turn. Oh, maybe around the next turn and the next turn. And, and the, so many times along the way, he's carrying this big bag and he would say, dad, this is so hard. This is so hard. This is so fun, dad. This is so fun. This is so hard, Dad. This is so hard. But this is so fun. This is so fun. He kept saying both those things. And we actually did the hike in two and a half hours. We got to Elfin Lake. So it's these two little lakes, a drinking water lake and a swimming lake. And you can swim up there. The campsites are over this canyon. And you overlook. The clouds kind of lifted. It was overcast. But they lifted. We could see the glaciers and the mountains. And you're out there in the middle of nowhere. And it's like we'd set up our tent there. And in the morning, we woke up. And it was like we were inside of a cloud. It was so misty and foggy, and then, you know, it lifts, and it it was this incredible experience. And I kept thinking about his comment on the way up. This is so hard, and this is so fun. And I was thinking, it's so strange. Those two things shouldn't go together. They should, should, you shouldn't say those two things together. It doesn't seem to work. It's so hard, and it's so fun. Often things that are hard— that take effort or work are also the most rewarding experiences. You can't go see that unless you're willing to do that hard hike, to go there and be there. And the spiritual disciplines are like this. You know, along the way, one of the parts of the the road we walked on, it's like, this is not a picture of it. But it's the idea. So we're walking along the kind of this narrow way, and the one side was this, it was like an embankment, and it was all shale rocks. And we looked at it and we thought, 
if someone was up there, it would start an avalanche. And then we started thinking, if one of those rocks just comes loose, it will start an avalanche. And so we were going along and we got nervous a little bit. And the other side of this little narrow road or hiking way path was this steep embankment. It was like a canyon. It went down. So we got the shale rock up on one side that's like an avalanche. And the other side is like this cliff. And so we were thinking, this is not a good setup. And so maybe that's why we did the hike so fast. We were like, okay, we got to get through this part. And you know what? The same dangers are for us as we approach the spiritual disciplines. There's these two dangers. And the one danger, maybe be like the shale cliff or avalanche, would be the idea that we can transform ourselves with our willpower and our hard work. And that is like a cliff avalanche waiting just to bury us. And on the other side of the narrow way would be the idea that there's nothing we can do. That God does everything and we just kind of wait for it to happen. And that's also a dangerous place, a cliff. Somewhere in between we could have this path, this narrow way that maybe we would call the path of disciplined grace. Is what Richard Foster calls it, who wrote a book about the disciplines, spiritual disciplines. It's a great book. And this is what he says. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. They are God's means of grace. They're not the grace. They're a means of grace. And so today I thought we would embark on this um, journey of this month of of talking about some of the spiritual disciplines. And the first one, which... Um, I learn, have been learning a lot about this summer, is the discipline of rest. The discipline of rest. Isaiah thirty fifteen says this, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. We don't often quote the last part, do we? The song... There was a Brian Dirksen song years ago. They didn't have that part in it. But you were unwilling. Learning to rest regularly reminds us. Don't you like all those R's? Learning to rest regularly reminds us that we belong to God. That we belong to God. So why should we rest? It's an important question that we need answered if we're going to embark on this way. There's a story in Exodus chapter 16, and um, it's, a, it's a funny little story, and it's after the people of Israel, they've been led out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, and God led them out with the plagues and all the amazing wonders of God, and Moses was there, and he led the people out. Through the Red Sea, they went onto the other side, and the, the Egyptian army was covered in the water. God saved them and rescued them out of slavery, and then he he sent them to the promised land. He said, this is where I'm calling you, where I'm sending you, where I'm, where I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And as they went, the very first thing that happens is they are hungry and thirsty and they, they complain and they grumble, which is not cool, but God still responds. And so they say, we're hungry and Moses goes to God and God provides. He provides quail, so meat. And the other thing he provided for their sustenance was this white stuff on the ground. Every morning, they woke up and there was this white stuff on the ground. And they went out and Moses said, this is for you to eat. And they said, well, what is it? And Moses said, it's, I don't know. 
they said, well, what is it? I don't know. Well, what should we call it? I don't know. Well, what is it? And so they called it, what is it? Manna. That's what manna means. What is it? <laughs> what is it? It's this stuff. And, and that's how God provided for their daily provision. And there were some rules that went around manna, this stuff. And the first rule was that you had to go out every day to get it. You had to go out every day to get it. And you could only take your personal allotted amount. And it was the, the measure is an omer. So we don't use omers to measure, but say that's like a cup or whatever it was. A certain amount you could take for you. And so they go out and you'd collect your omer and you'd bring it home and you'd eat it. And the next morning you'd have to go out and collect more. Now Moses said, you can't collect more than that and keep it for two days. It will go bad. You can't do that. You have to go get it every day. And they said, okay. And then the next rule was that when the Sabbath was coming, so the day before the Sabbath, so the day where they're not doing any work, set aside holy day, the day before, they could go out and they could collect two times their personal amount. So two omers instead of one omer per person. And they could collect it and bring it home. And then on the Sabbath, they would eat their second amount of manna. This makes sense, right? So, but the people didn't do that. The people went out and they collected as much as they could and they put it in their cupboard. Yes, yes, they hoarded some of it. And the next morning they opened it up and they thought, I don't have to go out and get manna. And they looked in the cupboard and it was all wormy, gross, disgusting. And that serves them right because then every time they ate manna, they would think about worms. No, I'm just kidding. It would be so gross, right? And... On the day before the Sabbath, some of the people collected. And then when the Sabbath came, they thought, oh man, we, you know, we got to go get more. And so they went out on the Sabbath to get manna and there wasn't any. Because that's what God had said would happen. Now, of course, if you and I were there, we would have got it right. Because we know all about rest, don't we? We know all about this, about how to rest. You know that the end of that passage that says you were unwilling. I feel like if any part of that verse in Isaiah speaks to me, it's that, that I am unwilling to rest. I'm unwilling. Why are we unwilling? If we're honest, we'll, we'll admit this is true of us as a culture, maybe in our lives, that we just don't stop. We just don't rest. We don't limit ourselves. We just keep going and going and going. And when I ask myself, why do we do that? Why do we as a culture do this? The answer that comes to me is that we're egomaniacs. We're egomaniacs. We have this, these, these things we believe about ourselves that just aren't true. And the first one is maybe that we think everyone, everything revolves around us. Everything revolves around us. And it's kind of true because everywhere I go, things are happening around me. And then I go somewhere else and things are happening over here. And I just, I kind of believe that when I leave the room, it's like the Truman Show or something. Everything shuts down and everyone kind of goes on break. And then I come back in the room and everything starts happening again. It's like everywhere I am, there I am, right? So it's all the world's happening around me all the time. I can't get away from it. It's about me, isn't it? And we have this belief that it's about us. Everything's happening to us and about us. Or secondly, we think that we make things happen. That if I'm not there, no one will know what to do. If systems will break down and chaos will ensue and nothing will get done, everyone will just be like, oh, what do we do? Jonathan's not here. Isn't that what you did last month? (laughs) 
And we think that it's all up to us. Like everything is up to us. The most ego-driven thought, I think, is that we're somehow indispensable to whatever we're involved in, that its survival depends on me. And if I'm not there doing it, it's going to fall apart. And I think that probably this comes from the belief that, you know, deep down that we don't fully trust God. We don't fully trust God. Why are they out there gathering so much manna? Why do they go out there? Why do they hoard it? Why do they fill their cupboards with it? God told them it doesn't work. Okay, okay, go ahead. I'm just picturing these there like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, go, okay, yeah, take as much as you want. Yeah, oh, no, there's lots there. Moldy worms. That's what you get. And we don't rest because we don't trust God. We're unwilling. So why should we rest? The first reason is a Sunday school answer, which is that God tells us to. It's still a good reason, even if it would be a good Sunday school answer. We should rest because God tells us to. He commands it. It's commandment number five out of the Ten Commandments. God creates the Sabbath day. This, this picture of a, a day for our benefit, a day of rest, one day in every seven that we would stop and reflect. Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 31, 13, God says to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It's this sign, this, this picture, that I'm the one doing the work in you. Or, of course, our verse, which is, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. But you think that God who made everything, would know how it works. We kind of think it's like, we believe God made everything, yes. But we're not totally sure he knows how it works because we don't know, eh, I don't know if I can totally trust that you're, you've got it laid out for me. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done because he was so tired and exhausted and worn out and he just couldn't do anything more. It doesn't say that. It says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God made us with limits, physical limitations that you have and that I have. And if you don't believe this is true, try not sleeping. See how long you can go without sleeping. And you will experience physical limitations. Or try pushing yourself into the red line over and over and over. Just keep, just keep pushing until something will happen. It's why we have this culture of broken down, burned out people struggling. And the church is no different. The star statistics in the church are not better because I think the church is like volunteers. They just keep coming. We'll just burn through them and they'll go out the, that door and we'll just keep, they keep coming in. We'll just, we'll burn through them and then they'll go out that pastors, yeah, and, and leaders and all sorts of volunteers doing everything. Yeah, we'll just, we'll burn through everybody. 
And that's kind of this mentality of like, well, it's just how it works. Secondly, we should rest to remind ourselves for the same reason we give. The same reason we, we give money is to remind ourselves that God provides. It's the same reason we, we take communion every week is to remind ourselves that God saves, saved us, gave Jesus to pour out his grace over us. And we rest to remember that we are dependent on God. Psalm 172 says, I read this last week, it's in vain that you rise early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 23, 1 to 3, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And of course, Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Stopping is a great way to find out how much you really trust God. Because all the things that bombard you, oh, wow, okay. Oh, these are all areas, opportunities for me to trust God in these areas. All those things that suddenly come up as you stop. So we'll need to learn to rest. There's, um, there's uh, nothing like experiencing what you thought you knew and actually didn't live out. And uh, my day off is Friday. That's like my Sabbath day that I've carved out because Sunday there's lots going on and I'm up early and working on stuff. So Friday is my day and I like to kind of putter around the house. I like to do something different, really different, and maybe get a little thing done and it's like fun to do. And Friday evening is our family night, and so we have dinner, and we have usually dessert is served with dinner, and then we do some kind of family activity. And uh, it's kind of a day set aside. And uh, one particular week, I came into Friday, and my sermon wasn't, it hadn't come together by Thursday night the way I wanted it to. And so I was thinking like, oh, Saturday, I've got all these different things going on. I'm not going to have a lot of time, but uh, so I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go into Friday. And so I went to bed and I woke up on Friday morning and I was thinking like, you know, I might just give it a few hours, you know, I'll just do a few hours on it. And so I went and got up and I had my quiet time and I was sitting there and I was kind of rushing through my readings. I was like, okay, and then I'm going to get to, I could see the, the computer and the dining room table. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to just a few hours over there. And as I was going through my, my time with the Lord quickly, hurry up, God, come on. Yeah. Okay. You know, I got work to do. And I felt like God said, You can go over there, but there's nothing to find. There's no manna on the Sabbath. This this picture, it's Exodus 16, 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Man, how often do we go out to find and there's nothing there? And I thought, I could go do that. And if there's nothing there, there's no manna, then what a waste of my time. 
to wake up early and get dressed and take my little omer cup and go out looking for manna. Oh, maybe there's some on that hill. Yeah, I'll go over there because I really need manna. Except for he's already provided. What we know and what we practice are often different things. That's the hard part. And so I'm learning to Sabbath. I'm still learning a lot about how to Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was a day that was holy, set apart is what it means. Set apart. A different day. A day to delight in the Lord, to remember his work in our lives, to honor him, to remember that he sanctifies us and he changes us and he transforms us. It was a day to remember that, something that was different. I remember standing, we were at Maple Ridge Community Church before we were here, and we were standing on, there's a causeway and there's like an a uh, covered playground, and the kids were outside after the gathering. They were out there, and some of them were playing soccer, and some of them were on the playground, and they're like laughing, and the ball's flying, and the kids are running around, and it's like really loud under there, and we're drinking coffee. And Lauren's uncle Peter was there, and he was like, he's this old Mennonite guy, and you know, he grew up in Abbotsford, Mennonite, the real Mennonite. So we're like real Mennonite. And so uh, he was standing there, and he was looking over all this, and then he said, he looked at me and he said, this never would have happened in my day. And I was like, oh, what, what? He was like, all this laughing. We never, we weren't allowed to laugh or play on the Sabbath. It was like, it was solemn. You, you'd get in trouble if you were joking or making laughter. And he liked it. He wasn't saying it in a bad way. And <laughs> I'm not convinced that we need to go back into the Old Testament and take all the instruction and nail it all down and that we're meant to follow it that way. I don't believe that it's necessarily a specific day that it needs to be on a Sunday, especially because they didn't celebrate it on a Sunday. Theirs was a Saturday. So if you want to get technical, that would be your Saturday. Yeah, and it would be also, the time was evening to evening. So even more so do we think, oh, wow, this is really throwing me for a loop. Because we don't think of days the same way they did. So, you know, I don't think the specifics matter as much as, you know, Jesus in Mark 2 says this, as they're challenging him on activities Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. This is what Jesus says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what I deeply believe is, and am convinced of, is that we need to walk with Jesus in carving out Sabbath. We need to walk with him and go seek him on what it should look like in our lives. Because I think it's meant to be there. And what it looks like in your context or mine may be different as we walk with Jesus. But here's a few things I thought of, just if you want some starting ideas. One idea would be to make it your habit to attend a church gathering of Christians. So this is what we do on Sunday. We do this here. And I know there's other days people gather. I think it marks something that's different, that we gather together and we worship together and we pray together and we're encouraged. And so if Sunday is your Sabbath, then it fits well that you could gather here with us and to make it your habit to do so. Another idea is to have a special meal or family time or intentional activity or celebration. 
So something that you are, you, you say like, oh, wow, I really, I meet God in a different way when I'm on a walk and I don't really get out to walk much. On your Sabbath, go for a walk. Go for a hike or something that you say, okay. Or a celebration where you say, let's celebrate what God's, God's work in our lives and let's do it with a cake. Like, why not cake on Sabbath, right? Like, any opportunity to have a cake, I think. But Really, the point is, though, that we would do something different from our usual routine. Different from the usual routine. So I know there's a family that does screen-free Sunday. Crazy people. Screen-free Sunday. Oh, my goodness, could you handle it? Or don't check your email. Don't mow the lawn. Don't do the dishes. Don't put the kids to bed. Don't do... Okay, no. Sorry, there's some things we need to do still. So, you know, it'd be nice if we didn't do anything at all that was routine, but some things we will need to do. The point is changing the routine. Maybe someone else does the dishes on the Sabbath. Kids? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. But to delight in the Lord, to remember his grace and his love, to rest is the picture of Sabbath. Every week. Every week. And we'll need to learn to quiet our souls. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And, you know, stillness and solitude are their own disciplines. They, in the Richard Foster book, they get their own chapters. So there's a lot we could say about stillness, a lot we could say about solitude. And yet they fit with the picture of rest, with this idea of going to rest. We keep ourselves so distracted with TV and music and noise and activity, and then we wonder why we aren't rested. Or we fill ourselves with coffee or Red Bull or whatever drink you drink and stay up later or get up earlier so we can get more done and accomplished. And we wonder why we aren't rested. Or we connect our work life to a little device that we keep with us like it's an appendage of our body. And then we wonder why we aren't rested. Quiet your soul. Put your phone away. Okay, that's heresy. I understand. It's cultural heresy. Quiet your soul. John Lubbock writes, Rest is not idleness, and to lie sometimes under trees on a summer's day, listening to the murmur of water, or watching the clouds float across the sky is by no means a waste of time. I like that. Man, there's a lot we miss. Because we're, oh, no, no, no. I'm busy. I keep busy. And we need to learn the rhythms of rest. So the Jewish calendar is full of seasonal festivals and holy days that are designed to reorder the rhythms of our lives. That's how they're laid out. They're, They're designed to stop us and to stop them directing the people to Stop and remember the Lord. Stop and remember the Lord. Stop and remember what he's done, what he's doing to turn our faces to him again. And so I'd encourage you, building an intentional stopping place helps you to rest. Putting them into your schedule 
looking ahead into your year and saying, hey, I want to I take time there. I want to take time there. I want to celebrate this, and I want to do it this way. For me, the past month has been that, taking a month off. In case you didn't know, I took August off. Surprise! <laughs> taking August off. And as a pastor, I realized my job doesn't stop. It's like I can leave the office space and there's still all this stuff going on. And so, and personally too, I I go on holiday and I spend the first week trying to gear down. And then I spend the last week trying to gear, I think like try not to gear up, but I do start thinking about everything. And so if my holiday was a week, I'm double already. Right? So to take more time to realize, oh, wow, the space I had in between, I really was able to rest. I was able to dial down and separate from all the worries and concerns, these things that, um, that were in my, in my grid. Learning your personal rhythms are also important. So we've talked about this too, that um, I'm an introvert. And I know lots of people think introverted means you're quiet and shy, and extroverted means you're loud and talkative. But introverted means that you gain energy when you're alone. So you can be with people, you can be as loud or quiet as you are, but you, you are drained of energy being with people, and you gain energy being alone. And extroverts gain energy being with people, and they are drained when they're alone. So they can be alone. But the longer they're alone, it's like, oh, I need to be with people. Oh, I love this. It feels so good. So learning about your personality is part of learning the rhythms of your, of your life, of rest. So for me, I realize I need to build time into my week to be alone because that's where I get energy. And I love being with people. I love counseling. I love doing all these things. And yet I have to make time, build time into my personal life where I'm resting, where I'm gaining energy. These realities shape your day or your week or your season, your holiday times, that we have limits and we understand them and we live within them. My kids say before they go to bed, and now Miriam's doing it, all of them have done it. They say, why do I need to go to sleep? It's a common kid question when you're putting kids to bed. Why do I have to go to sleep? Because we have to sleep. Why do we have to sleep? Because God made you that way. That's my answer now. Because when I did it for Maddie, I was like, well, there's REM sleep, and there's these different things, Maddie, and let me explain how sleep works to you. And now with Miriam, I'm like, God made you that way. Go to sleep. And Miriam says, well, why? Why? And the answer is so that you would remember that God made you and that you need him. That's why. So sleep and think about that. Go to sleep. And these things should lead us to devotion. I know some of you are going to chafe. It's going to be hard when we say the word discipline right away. It's like, oh, it's like one of those words that can grate on certain, certain people have a wrestle with that word, discipline. And we don't like what discipline implies. It sounds too close to law. And, uh, and it's hard. So I found this definition of discipline and I liked it. Discipline is the difference between what you want now and what you want most. It's the difference between what you want now and what you want most. You know, when we were, uh, when I sent Ben and Sarah down the aisle, we were celebrating our 16th year of marriage, our 16th anniversary, on their wedding day. They stole our anniversary. (laughs) 
That's why I was so angry when I married them. And, you know, I can still remember the day we got married. I remember the blue sky. I remember the blue carpet. I remember the joy in my heart and the smile that was pasted on my face till my face actually hurt. And people later called me the grinning groom because I, I had this, like, perma-smile all day. I remember our wedding night and our honeymoon bliss. I remember these things. And I'm still happily married because of disciplines. Because of disciplines. Discipline to connect regularly in quality time. Discipline to talk through conflict. Discipline to go away together. Discipline to guard my heart and my eyes. Discipline to give gifts and encouraging words. Discipline to say, I love you. Now, disciplines are not my happy marriage. Disciplines are not my happy marriage. But disciplines keep me moving toward what I want most. Right? That was our definition. Between what I want now and what I want most. And what I want most is that when I'm old, that I will still be passionately in love with my wife. That she would have my heart and I would have hers. That's what I want. And so these things keep me focused on the goal. They keep me moving toward it. And so we are disciplined to devotion. You know, the, the biggest danger is that as we talk about disciplines, we would think of it as an end. Because the discipline is not an end. And the Pharisees, they got mixed up with it. So they got the commands and they said, we want to follow the commands of God. And we're going to use all of our willpower and all of our energy to follow the commands of God. And then they set out rules around the commands so that they could protect the commands of God. And then they realized, oh, that's not even working. Let's set out rules around the rules around the commands of God. And they got so caught up in the rules around the rules around the rules around the commands of God so that they could follow the commands that that they became lost. It's why they're going to Jesus, like in Matthew 12, a man was there with a withered hand and the Pharisees, they asked him, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Can you imagine this? They're bringing the withered hand guy in so that Jesus might heal him and they can accuse him. Jesus, you healed on the Sabbath. Like they're so lost from the point of the Sabbath. And Jesus answers, you know, so it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath as you would do good and help people. They wanted to accuse him of healing someone. Like it's crazy. They were so confused. They'd missed the point of the Sabbath. They were devoted to discipline instead of allowing the discipline to lead them to devotion, to loving God more, to loving Jesus. So I think as we come toward the end, we should ask the question, how does rest move us toward loving God more? How does it move us toward God? And one answer is really simple one, is that it's a healthy habit. It's a healthy habit. Bertrand Russell says, Right discipline consists not in external compulsion, but in the habits of mind which lead spontaneously to desirable rather than undesirable activities. It's like it's not an external thing being forced on you. It's like discipline is meant to grow in your heart and help you move to a place where you're doing more of the things you want to do and less of the things that you don't actually want to do, which Paul talks about. How come I'm always doing the things I don't want to do? Right? We're moving toward the things we want to do, and discipline is helping us. 
And I find that when I'm rested, I think better and I feel better and I make better decisions and I have a better perspective on the struggles and the challenges I'm going through. Not to rest for the sake of rest, but resting to move us closer to God, to the heart of God, so that I would trust him more and experience more grace. And secondly, it's a real-life reminder. It's a real-life reminder. It's so fun to make everything spiritual, and then we go back into our life, our everyday life. When you leave, we go off and, you know, oh, this is my work, and this is oh, and then we come to, to church, And we talk about these spiritual things like rest. Yes, it's very spiritual. Except for it's very real life. When you make the choice to stop or to keep going, it's a spiritual choice. That's what spiritual warfare is defined as, is is the choices you make in your life. It's not just like, oh, it's out there somewhere. It's like right here in your life. Choosing to stop is a spiritual choice. Can I trust God? Do I trust him with real things in my life? Real things like work or studies or homework or responsibilities or whatever thing you'd put there? Can I really trust him with this and stop and allow myself to see him come through? Psalm 116 verse 7 is a great verse. You could write it down and put it on your wall. And when you're struggling with resting... You could read it back to yourself and speak it out over your heart. It says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Oh man, oh man, I don't know if I can. I don't know. I've got all these things. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Okay, but I have all these things I've got to do tomorrow. Return to your rest, O my soul. You just keep saying it over your soul till your soul listens. And at the end of the day, we have to recognize that this all falls apart very quickly. If you think you have this nailed, if you say, yes, I've got rest nailed, number one, check, then you get proud. And when you get proud because you've got it nailed, right away you look at other people and you say, they don't have it nailed, they're working on the Sabbath. I saw, I saw Craig mowing his lawn on Sunday don't know what day is his Sabbath, but I'm worried about him. And we start judging other people. And as we judge other people, then what happens is we start to get afraid of losing control. And so we move from pride to judgment to fear. And it all comes apart. The minute it's like, oh, it seems to be working. Like, oh, it's not working for him. Oh, no, I'm afraid it's not going to keep working. And it all comes apart. That's the craziness of it. Richard Foster writes this, if we are to progress in the spiritual walk so that the disciplines are a blessing and not a curse, we must come to the place in our lives where we can lay down the everlasting need of always needing to manage others. So here's your application. Apply this to yourself. Apply it to yourself, not to your spouse. Oh, my spouse doesn't rest. Oh, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be playing this sermon over and over out loud in the house so that my spouse can hear this message. We want to apply to everyone else but ourselves. Apply it to, your, to yourself, to your own heart. We depend on the Spirit of God to empower us to live new creation lives. And we rely on his presence in our lives. And we rely on his presence in the lives of others to bring about change. That's why we're walking together 
Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Walking together and allowing Him to work in the lives of those close to us. Learning to rest regularly reminds us that we belong to God. Why? We rest because God told us to. He said it's the best way for us to live. And we learn. We learn to do it by applying it in our life, sometimes in costly ways. Oh, my goodness. I remember in university. Oh, man. No, I'm not going to study on Sunday. Ooh, that's really scary. However you apply it in your daily and weekly life to rest. And that all of this is meant to lead us in devotion to to the Lord. It's meant to remind us and help us learn to trust him more, that we would have a deeper devotion to Jesus. Let's pray.